Good morning, everyone. It's great, isn't it, to look up and uh, encounter the one who's won our hearts. I'll just uh, love those words this morning. Can I recommend a book to you? I'm just organizing my little workspace here. Seems to be a lot of stuff uh, around here. That's great. Can I um, recommend a book to you? Um, I'm touching on the subject of humility this morning, but this is a fantastic book. I read this at the end of the summer, um, and it really challenged me. It's called Humble Roots. It's by a lady um, who's married to a rural pastor in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains of West Virginia. And uh, she's got an incredible ministry in, in conferences and in writing. And she writes about very ordinary things that are in her, her life, in her garden, in where they live in that part of the world. Um, and she just speaks some beautiful truths in a fantastic way. So I can recommend this book to you highly. Humble Roots, it's called. Uh, How Humility Grounds and Nourishes Your Soul. We're looking this morning at the subject of greatness in the kingdom. And if you can turn to Matthew and chapter 20, we're going to read some verses from there. Matthew chapter 20. The word cameo has a number of meanings. It uh, can be a lady's brooch if you watch uh, the Antiques Roadshow. It can be a short written piece or it can be a dramatic scene. In continuing our series on kingdom, we're not going to be looking at brooches, I can assure you, but we're going to look at a scene in Matthew's gospel here. There are four main characters in this passage. Uh, a mother called Salome, who's not mentioned, named here, but her name is Salome. Her two sons, James and John, and Jesus. So if we can read Matthew chapter 20 and verses 20 to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on the right hand and one on the left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to eat to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a fascinating little cameo, which gives us an insight into the relationships of the early disciples. It doesn't portray them in a very good light, does it? However, having warts and all stories in scriptures, I think, gives us a very human and a very authentic touch. So I want to look at this passage 
uh, in four scenes, if you like, this morning. Scene one is the request. Scene two, the argument. Thirdly, we're going to look at the principle. And fourthly, the subplot. Dun, da, da. So firstly, the request. Have you ever encountered pushy parents? If you are a teacher here, I can see you smirking. You will recognize that for sure. Pushy parents are always wanting the best for their darling little children in a whole range of areas. Salome, the mother in our story, at first reading can appear like a pushy mum, ambitious for her sons, James and John. But they approach Jesus together with Salome being the spokesman. Salome kneels in front of Jesus with respect and honor, but is asking that in the kingdom Jesus is teaching about, her sons would have prominent position, one on the right and one on the left. It is, there's a hierarchy here because the person on the right would be seen as more important than the person on the left. So they were wanting places of privilege an honor of prestige and power, position in society in Jewish times was very important in this day, as it is in our society for some. James and John were cousins of Jesus, and maybe the family thought this entitled them to some special favor. Were they seeking some reward for faithfulness to Jesus' mission? Her request might have been triggered by Jesus' comments in Matthew 19 and verse 28. Let me just read that to you. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As we've noted before, the Jews at this time were living under military rule and heavy taxation from the Romans who were occupying their country. And before the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, the followers of Jesus were expecting him to bring a revolution, to bring an earthly type of kingdom. None of the disciples had fully understood Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. And in the three verses before this scene, Jesus again speaks about his destiny of going to Jerusalem, standing trial, being condemned, and how he would die. Salome was one of the significant women who followed Jesus' ministry. She and Mary remained at the cross when Jesus was crucified, when everyone else left. Salome witnessed firsthand the crucifixion, the shattering of dreams, of transformation and change in that city. Mary and Salome were among the women who discovered the early tomb on Resurrection Sunday. But this request, you know, does seem odd to us, doesn't it? Or even outrageous, but came from a misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus' kingdom. It was asked out of ignorance and pride. James and John, in their mixed motives of pride, lack of humility, human weakness were also expressing some loyalty to Jesus, but they didn't understand what they were asking. The irony, of course, is that when Jesus was crucified, he had a man on his right and his left, but it wasn't James or John. They had fled. 
So scene two is the argument. The other disciples were indignant at this request. They were angry and jealous, showing an ambitious spirit in themselves. They had similar views of greatness as James and John. They too wanted to be on the top table, as it were, with Jesus. This was not the first time this type of argument had arisen amongst the disciples. They were showing ambitious motives and lack of humility. If you can turn over to Luke chapter 14, um, we'll just read very quickly a passage that Jesus says, has, talks about humility. Luke 14 and verse 8. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul in Romans also says, a man is not to think of himself more highly than he ought but to think with sober judgment. Jesus challenged James and John, are you able to drink of the cup? What did Jesus mean by the cup? The cup is a symbol of destiny. So Jesus is speaking of his destiny, the cup of suffering for the sins of mankind. Jesus challenged them, can you drink a cup of suffering? Are you able to face suffering and not run away? Will you stand on that day when you're called to stand? And of course, just as Peter denied Christ, James and John also didn't stick around when Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They too fled and abandoned Jesus along with the other disciples. So thirdly, the principle Now, you will have all seen the principle here, I'm sure, on the reading. The principle here, the kingdom principle here, is not hard to see. Greatness in the kingdom is all about being a servant. Jesus said to them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Kingdom greatness is seen in servant-heartedness. That's why our four key values are love, build, and celebrate, well done. Being a servant or slave in Jewish society in AD 30 was the lowest position you could hold, the least sought after job, if you like. Jesus reverses all of this and says, these positions, servants and slaves, are the greatest. Jesus' kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It truly is revolutionary. Jesus was the greatest servant. He modeled this throughout his life. Jesus, if anyone, deserved to be served because he is God and he was sent to be the Messiah. But Jesus came 
to be served and not to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever wants to be great in the kingdom must be a servant. Jesus lived this. Now, a ransom is money paid to free a captive, a payment to release a prisoner. In the news, occasionally, you hear of people being kidnapped with a personal group claiming responsibility and a ransom request made. And if that's not paid, a threat made as an outcome. A ransom in AD 30 was the purchase price for freeing slaves. This is the picture for us. Jesus paid the price for our captivity, for our release from the prison of our slavery to sin, from the prison of our aging bodies, hallelujah, and eventually from death. Jesus serves us in this way. Jesus serves you in this way. This servant act of Jesus rescues us from the chains of sin, the bondage of death. I can feel a hallelujah coming. Please, come on. From perishing, Jesus has rescued us. Oh, Jesus has rescued us. Amen. Amen. Jesus suffered and he endured hardship, opposition, pain, rejection, mocking, the whole lot. From Jesus' pain, we gain. Greater love has no one than this, and someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, you are my friends. James and John's answer to Jesus' question, can you drink this cup? Can you drink a cup that involves suffering? They said, yes, we are able. Jesus prophetically said to them, you will drink of my cup. And later in life, James was executed. He was martyred by King Agrippa. And John lived to an old age, endured hardship, isolation, and exile on the Greek island of Patmos. That doesn't sound like suffering to me, but I think it was suffering for him. They endured to the end. They served to the end with faith. Some commentators bring out the point that often serving Jesus involves loss and suffering. James and John's later life certainly testify to this. But after the weakness and fear at Jesus' arrest, they received of the Holy Spirit. They received an empowering of Pentecost. They were filled with the Spirit, which enabled them to endure loyal, long service for Jesus. Oh, that we would be empowered to be faithful servants. Amen. As an aside, you know, it distresses me immensely, and I say this genuinely, when people fall away, when they make commitments to Jesus and somehow lose it somewhere along the line, they lose their first love. It genuinely really upsets me, you know, to receive the well done, good and faithful servant is my genuine prayer for you and for myself. You know, that we would not slip and fall, but we would finish well and be faithful to Jesus, whatever life brings. Greatness in the kingdom, as Jesus taught his disciples, was countercultural then and it is now. 
Greatness in the Jewish, Gentile, and Roman world that Jesus was speaking into was measured by status and title and rank and power and achievement. Similar in our own day. People strive, don't they, for status and position. They strive for greatness. They strive for occupational success. It's all about their accomplishments, our position, the influence we have, the special talent that we might have, our popularity. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? We measure greatness, you see, with the wrong measuring stick, with the wrong barometer. And the church can so easily get caught up in this culture, by affected by this culture. We too can have ungodly ambition. We can seek status and power, money and position. One who ministers, in inverted commas, is one who helps, one who serves. Servant leadership is the kingdom model. Godly church leaders, and as many of you here today, seek to encourage, to facilitate, to enable others to serve, give people space to serve, a platform to serve. That is part of a leader's job description, not to lord it over others, but to serve God with godly authority and humility. So often the word minister becomes a title or a badge for people to wear. Positions of responsibility held in the church are exercised best by those with humble hearts, those who lay down their lives for others, have others' interests and needs before their own. Such a challenge for every church leader. You know, we so often have an unconscious division between what is so-called spiritual and practical You know, if you minister by leading a life group or using a spiritual gift or praying for the sick or on the pastoral team, it can be seen as somehow different from being the church caretaker or one who has to be in the car park when it's pouring down with rain or being our bookkeeper or replacing a light bulb. None of it is any different. It is all ministry. It is all service. Whatever your area of service in this church and I do pray that you are serving in some way, you're contributing to the kingdom of God here in Helsham. Greatness in the kingdom is radically different. Jesus Jesus confronts ungodly human ambition, and we're reminded it is about being a childlike servant with a humble heart, being obedient to the king. Ambition... It's bad when it is greedy, self-centered, when it hurts others and uses others. But godly ambition, selflessly directed towards humbly serving others, is righteous. It's about us giving ourselves to the fellowship of believers and ultimately to the kingdom of God and his purposes. Seek first the kingdom of God. When Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he washed the disciples' feet. That was very cultural because the dusty, dirty, muddy roads that, uh, they, that people would have walked on to get to a guest's home needed to be washed. This was normally done by a non-Jewish slave on the arrival in a host's home. 
Jesus, by washing his disciples' feet, was demonstrating a humble act of serving his disciples. What is your equivalent act of serving others? We can muddy the waters, not wanting to make a pun there, we can muddy the waters with false humility and easily opt out, oh, that is not my gift, you know. That can be a mere excuse not to serve sometimes. But it's not only serving in the church, it's serving our community, those around us. So, so often in the little things, being helpful and thoughtful to your neighbour. The last hospital I worked at um, up in London um, had long corridors, and one evening there wasn't anybody in the corridor apart from one of uh, the hospital workers who was ahead of me in the corridor. And he stepped down and picked up some litter on the floor and put it in the bin. It wasn't his job to pick up litter. He could have thought, the cleaner's going to be here soon. He did that without anyone noticing. I don't think he knew I was there and saw him. The little things can sometimes matter so much. This week, a neighbor just did a little something for me which meant a lot. It's not always the big things in us serving. It can sometimes be the small things. Your neighbors, those you rub shoulders with, are your immediate mission field, if, you're li- if you like. Those um, shops that you use, your office, your school, your gym, your club, how can you serve? How can you help? Not drawing attention to yourself. How can you bless others in those situations? I've got a slide here that Phil will just show us that I came across this week. This is quite pertinent. I'm not interested in whether you stand with the great. I'm interested in whether you sat with the broken. Greatness is being faithful with all that we have been given to serve others from a place of rest. Can I give you a practical challenge? We are in the season of Lent. Traditional churches celebrate this act with self-denial. Can I challenge you all to ask God how he wants you to deny yourself over this period up to Easter in order to serve someone else in some way? So often Lent, in Lent, people give up chocolate, which to me appears to have some mixed motives there for some other agenda. But can I encourage you to ask God what you should give up so that you can serve others? It may be with the 40-40 with the food bank. It may be with some other thing. It may be with some random acts of kindness. Decide to do a random act of kindness to someone in the street. Uh, once a week or something, or some special prayer focus, something as a life group, whatever, be creative. Can I challenge you to be great in the kingdom and give up something to serve another as we come up to Easter? So, fourthly, the subplot. James, John, and Peter were the closest disciples to Jesus. They were the ones who spent most time um, out of the other, all of the disciples with Jesus. They were his inner circle, his leadership team, if you like. They witnessed the transfiguration. They were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. James and John, in wanting to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus, were wanting a position of reward, of status and favor. Surely they deserve some reward for being close and loyal to Jesus. You could argue that they deserved a reward. Scripture tells us that we will 
receive a reward. um, Sarah read um, about casting our crowns before him. And we are, we will receive crowns uh, in 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 the next life. But the subplot here is what is the reward for being in the kingdom? Surely if you run the race well, there's a great reward. What is our reward in serving Jesus? This passage that we looked at today directly follows the parable of the hired laborers in the vineyard, which I've always found an intriguing story. Those who worked a full-day shift in the vineyard received the same pay as those who worked for half a day. Even those who only worked for the last hour in the vineyard received the same wages. A very confusing parable. Cutting across society's view that you're rewarded for your time and your effort that you put in. The rewards of the kingdom of God are the same for all. The benefits of grace are the same for everyone. Maybe this seems unfair to you. Living in the kingdom of God is not a reward for giving up something or earning merit points for being a follower of Jesus. We don't, extra, we don't earn extra reward points for being a disciple for decades. It's not like a savings scheme or a pension pot. The more you put in, the more you get out. It doesn't work like that. It's not like your supermarket loyalty card. Being a childlike servant of Jesus, enduring hardship if we're called to, living with injustice for a season, living humbly, that is true greatness. The thief on the cross to whom Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't gain entry into the kingdom as a reward for what he'd achieved or his status or what he'd accomplished in life. He was a common criminal, yet he responded to the love and grace of God, to the offer Jesus gave him, and he received all that we will receive. Kingdom reward is not a reward for behavior. Do you know what our reward is? Our reward is Jesus. And you know, Jesus is enough. He is our reward. The one who is the rewarder fills our hearts and is our reward. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. To see Jesus will be enough. Greatness in the kingdom belongs to those who serve with pure hearts. Amen.